What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Abira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around, he was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm Lou Nagara. Bill, we're going to continue our discussion, our analysis of the Chicago Ripper Crew or the Ripper Crew. And uh, if you haven't listened to part one, we did a part one on this, so you may want to go back and do that. And uh, yeah, so where we left off, these guys were just kind of getting started with this and now they kind of go off on one of the most shocking murder sprees I think in history or at least one of the most gruesome uh, real quick check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries follow us on Patreon subscribe to Patreon that is patreon.com slash Death Row Diaries where you'll get bonus content almost an episode per week that you can't get anywhere else and this is the last time i'm going to say this but right now if you sign up we will cover a case that you request and we're doing that for our new subscribers and our old subscribers so bill let's get back into it with the ripper crew as i said when we left off they were just ramping up right yeah, they had, well, we had talked about at least their first murder that law enforcement knew about. And I always say, I emphasize that law enforcement knew about or know about, but the deal is that, you know, killers usually start off doing other things. They don't start off by murdering immediately. It just, it doesn't really happen that way. And with this crew, we see the first murder is really developed already. They've already got an MO, they already have a signature, they already have all these things that you would expect from a killer who's more experienced, or killers that are more experienced. But that's why this case really is a bit confusing because according to the, the, the perpetrators themselves, they say that there's 18 to 20 murders. And usually you could say, well look, most of these guys, they want to brag about what they're doing, but it was under different circumstances. When they got caught, they actually began to talk about it in interrogation. So they weren't trying to brag about it, they were trying to get themselves out of it. So I, I tend to believe that that number between 18 and 20 is correct, but they're very developed by the first murder that law enforcement know about. The person's abducted, she's killed, uh, her left breast is uh, removed, she's mutilated, she's raped, she's tortured. There's a lot of things going on here that always scream to me experience. So 
with no further ado, let's pick up with the, um, well, really the second murder was Lorreen uh, Borowski. The third one that we know about is a, in 1982, May 29th, and I'm gonna mess up his name like I always do, but her last name is Mac, Sui Mac, I believe it is, and she was abducted, Matt, as she was returning home from a restaurant in Streamwood. She got into an argument with her brother, and they were in the car together. He pulled over and basically dropped her off the side of the road because he believed that his family members were right behind him, but they weren't. And that was the last time they saw her. And until she was later, uh, four months later, she was found in a construction site and she had similar relations to her body as um, the first victim. And that is the removal of the breast, uh, tortured, uh, raped, abducted. So he had really similar things that people could say, look, the removal of the breast, that's, that's a big one because that doesn't usually happen very often. So law enforcement are beginning already to look that something is going on here that screams possibly serial killer. Right, because of the breast mutilation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so are the authorities kind of picking up on this at this point? Because they keep finding, um, you know, there, there's a pattern. They keep finding women. Yeah, and, and some of the women are, are some of the women are sex workers. Some are not. But yeah, they they're, they're beginning to suspect because of the mutilation to the breast. And it doesn't take long. The following month in June, um, the Ripper crew strikes again. However, this one, this young woman named Angel York, she's, I mean, she suffers a brutal attack. Um, she says she is taken by two men. She doesn't know it. They are, they handcuff her. They pick her up first in a red van. Then they handcuff her, they rape her, they force her to cut herself with a large knife. And then she's later mutilated further by one of the men, and he actually masturbates into her wound where she, they've removed her breast. Oh, God. And this is some really horrible stuff. I mean, these guys are really pieces of garbage. And then they close the, the, the wound to continue to torture her with duct tape. When they think that she's actually you know, past the, 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 the point of no return, they dump her in the streets. And she survives. She tells police what has happened to her. And by this time, police know that they're dealing with either a serial killer or, or two serial killers. Because she said that there was two men that abducted her. And look, in this time in, in Chicago, there's actually 18 women that are missing. So all of these things are happening around the same time. Police think that if not one, I mean, if not most, if not all, these disappearances have to do with these people or this serial killer that's working. Right, right. 
So we talked about this with a few other cases. The point of leaving her alive is that maybe so that they can have um, they can see her and, and know that she's around. Like like it's a I don't know. It's a it's a trophy or something. Like a witness to their deeds, so it kind of pushes the level or at least spreads the word of what's going on. You know, with these guys, I don't think so. You know, I, I don't think that they were, um, I don't think they were trying to get caught. I don't, I don't believe that's the case here. It's, it's, it's really unclear. I, I, one of the other victims, she was left for dead and she survived it. And of course, we'll, we'll get into it in a moment, but I, I don't know. It's really interesting because in my opinion, these killers were trying to continue doing what they were doing which no one knew what it was. The, the severance of the, of, the, uh, of the breast, the mutilation of the sex parts, the rape, the torture. None of these women, except for this one now, Angel York, had survived. They all died. So there was no witnesses. No one knew what they were doing. But now they have a red van. They, they're, they're talking about a red van and they're talking about multiple guys. So she survives it. But two weeks later, in August... A young sex worker named Sandra Delaware is dumped along the Chicago River. And her wrists are bound behind her with shoelace. Her left breast has been amputated. A bra was tied around her throat to, to choke her. And all the, the signals now are a serial killer is working in Chicago. They don't have a name for him. They don't know what it is. Is it one, is it two? They don't know. But now police are really searching. There's there's a unit, a squadron of officers are put to work this. They're looking for a perpetrator and they know he's out there and now they're searching. They're looking for a red van. They're looking for a guy who looks suspicious. Nothing is, uh, nothing comes up, but now this is where a little bit of things get a little blurry. Because this case that I'm about to talk about now, at first, they were suspected of doing it. Later, not so much. So can this case be attributed to the, to the Ripper Four or the, the Chicago Rippers? That's a good question. And the person is famous because her name is Carol Papas. And she is the wife of the Chicago Cubs pitcher. And, of course, that brought a lot of attention to this case. The case later was ruled an accident. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. The case was ruled an accident several months later. However, really, within a very, very short span, it happens again. A young woman named Rose Beck Davis, and she is not a sex worker. She is a marketing executive. And she is found stabbed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, 
Priceline. Raped, strangled. And she saw behind the stairwells in apart- apartments. And again, police are asking the question, could this be attributed to the same guys? Is this the one guy and several guys? And we don't know until later on in this case when another person is abducted and it happens again. And that happens right around October. But as this is going on, there is a situation, and we find this out later by one of the co-defendants of the Ripper Four or the Chicago Rippers, whatever you want to call them. He's giving up information because there's a case that has nothing to do with women, has nothing to do with rape or torture or anything, but it is one of the defendants in the case, and that is the guy um, is robbing Gitch. So we, we have a case here where police would never think that the same guys that's committing all these murders commit this case. It, it's completely different, different MO, different people. It's male rather than female. There's no sexual contact. It's just a shooting. And it happens when Ed Pritchard is finally caught at one point. And I'm jumping ahead right here just to show you the diversity in these guys. And usually it's, it's this guy, Robin Getch. This guy is the brains behind the thing. He is the dominant. He is the guy that's calling most of the shots. Well, he pulls over and he pulls out two guns and shoots both these guys, killing Rafael Tirado. And he paralyzes Alberto Rosario from bullet wounds. No one ever suspected these guys of doing this. And this shows the diversity of these, these killers, that they can act and kill in a different circumstance than what they're normally attributed to them. So, uh, but look, they do this, it's business as usual, because a, shoot, a couple weeks later, another prostitute is abducted. She again, raped, mutilated, tortured, and dumped by a railroad truck. But this one, Beverly Washington, she's only 20 years old, she was left for dead. She was found a short time after the, the attack, and she was taken to a hospital. And her injuries, just bear with me. Her injuries are just horrific. Her left breast had been amputated with what the defendants themselves later described as a wire garrote or garrote. And it's basically what you do is you put it around, like say your wrist, and then you just twist it until it actually cuts to the skin, the bone, and it, and, it, and it amputates your arm. It's an extremely excruciating device. It is a torture device, and that's how they amputated her breast. Most of these other ones also had similar uh, injuries to the other victims. Some of them were cut with knives, and some were used as wire garrote. Her right breast was slashed so severely it was almost amputated. And she was able to give uh, a very clean description of who did this to her. She said that the man who was driving the van had greasy brown hair, a mustache, and he wore a flannel shirt, and he had square-toed boots. And that's pretty detailed account so police began to look. She does survive, but she is horribly um, scarred for the rest of her life. 
So as time goes on, police actually pull over a red van. But the guy driving it doesn't look anything like the guy she described. This guy's got red hair. The uh, part of the description that was held back from the news media was the red van had tinted windows. And the red van had on the rear view mirror a roach clip with feathers. And if you remember back in the 1980s, guys always put little roach clips with feathers on it. Uh, there were usually pheasant feathers or peacock feathers or whatever it was for, for the marijuana things. So um, they were looking for this and sure enough, the Pulera van, the van has all of these things, the tinted window, the roach clip, everything matches, even a council. There was a wooden council between the back of the van and the front was there. So these are things that were held back because law enforcement usually hold things back so they can really, you know, weed out the guys who are bullshitting, the one attention from guys who really are the ones who did it. Everything matches. However, the guy doesn't look like a guy. But as the guy's talking, he divulges that, well, the van doesn't belong to him. It belongs to his boss. Who is his boss, you know, I ask? Well, it's a guy by the name of Robin Ketch. And they, police actually asked him, hey, would you like to, um, let's go to this guy's house and, you know, have him come outside. I want to talk to him. Of course, the guy driving the van was, was Ed Spritzer. So they get to his house. He brings him out. And sure enough, Robin Gedge is wearing exactly what he was wearing the night of the, of, the, of, the, of the crime. He has a flannel shirt on, he has a square-toed cut boots, and he has brown hair, he matches the description, and right away they take these guys to the station. And this is basically where at least the crimes to women on the street ends. Right, right. So... So they knew there was a red van, right? And then, I know it was the 80s, but how many red vans could there be, right? Well, there's probably a lot of red vans around, but the, the, the thing was, again, they held back certain details because they didn't want, they could have been easily changed. The tinted windows can easily be changed in a van. The, the wooden council can also be, uh, the console could, could be changed. The roach clips on the, on the rear mirror easily could have been changed. So they, they kept some information behind, but this man had everything matched to the T. And then the guy steps out, looks exactly like the guy that she says. They bring him down to the station, they bring Miss Washington in, and she picks him out of a lineup. It's a photo lineup at first, but she picks him, that's the guy. So they got their guy now, and Ed uh, Spritzer, this is where things begin to fall apart, and these guys are just, but they're weenies. This guy Spritzer was so afraid, he, be, he wrote a 78-page confession about everything that they were doing. And he also implicates, as does Robin, by the way, Robin gets, when he gets in there, he's calm as cucumbers. He tells them, I don't know what you're talking about, look, this guy's obviously disturbed, and he plays perfect, but the one thing he does that pissed off law enforcement was he immediately lawyered up. He, <clears throat> wait, who lawyered up? Why did he, so he 
wrote a lengthy, very lengthy confession and then lawyered up? Or no, no, no. Ed Spritzer, the co-defendant who brought them to Robin Kitch, he immediately cracks under pressure. Tells the cops, "Look, we've been mutilating women. We've been killing women. We've been doing all this stuff." He writes a 78-page confession about some of the things that he, Robin Getch, have done. And he mentions, of course, these other co-defendants, which are Tommy and Andrew, um, who are the, the two brothers. But things go really weird because once Ed Spritzer writes this confession, they want to get Robin Getch to confess. They need him to confess because Spritzer is telling him, look, this is the guy. This is, he's the head of our crew. He has a, a, a Satanistic chapel. We, he, tell, he tells him, we cut the breast off with, with, with uh, a pair of, of a garoti, a wire garoti. And, and Robin would have us kneel and masturbate on the pieces of meat of the woman. And once we're done doing that, we would cut the pieces of it and consume them. And he's giving these guys all these details about the girls that he killed, that he's the one who picked them up with Robin, that both Andrew and Tommy were participating, all of this stuff he talks about. So when they mention that to Robin, Robin's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he gets a lawyer, but he does tell him, yeah, I know who, I know who the, the two brothers, Andrew and Tommy are. He tells him I know who they are, sure. But I don't know that they do all these things, with, which is what Ed is saying. So what they do is the cops play an old trick, but it backfired. They put Spritzer in another room and they allow to, they allow Robin to see him cooperating with police. He's writing, he's writing down statements. So they're telling him, look, this guy's giving it up. This guy's telling us what's going on. You might as well confess. This guy stays cool as hell, but he makes his presence known to Ed Spritzer. And once Ed Spritzer knows he's close to him, he changes his entire story. He says, it is, it wasn't Getch. I made a mistake. It wasn't Getch that did this. The guy who actually did all the murders was actually my sister's boyfriend. And that's when he mentions Andrew and Tommy. So he basically opens up a can of worms. They go and get those guys as well. And they began to confess, all of them. They said they, they witnessed the murders, they were there for the murders, they cut up the body parts, they ate the body parts, that they cut off breasts, and at one time there were 16 breasts in that particular, like this communion thing that, that Getch had, had in the house as part of a chapel that he had, and that he would recite um, verses from the Satanistic Bible, this is like an entire little cult thing, and these guys are all copying to it. So right away, they just spill all the beans. But get he's just he's just got this drive-by shooting deal, which is still a big deal. But he's sitting pretty at this point, right? Well, they're trying to charge him, but they don't have enough evidence. And they try their best to get him, but they have him for the Washington case. The, the, the 20-year-old Washington, who is a, a, a sex worker, she actually identifies Gadge, and she, she can only identify one of the people that, that, that uh, assaulted her, and that's him. So they have him on that one. 
And that's what they're going to take on the trial because they have nothing else. Yeah, they have the the shooting, but that was again another very difficult one. They don't have ballistics. They don't have. They have the, the, the testimony of a guy who now has changed his whole story. He says now it's Tommy and Andrew. That is an inconsistent statement. That's very difficult for them to pin it up. So they proceed to go to the Getz's house. They tear it apart with the search warrant. They look. Yeah, they find the the, the black mass. They find. The chapel. They find the box, but again, this is before DNA, so they don't know if that blood of the, the, the box matches the breast. None of this stuff matches because it's way before DNA analysis and all this stuff. Wait, wait, wait. So did they? they to, did they find a box with fifteen severed breasts in it at his house? They did not. They found the box, and it was empty. I see. But yeah, they, but they put these guys in prison. They charged them. Um, they had a $1 million bond back in those days. They had a lot of money. Most people cannot get out that kind of thing. Um, and the police just, they begin to interrogate all three of them. And, and we're talking about the three. is Tommy, Andrew, as well as Ed. They're the ones talking. Getch is saying zero. He knows nothing. He doesn't know what's going on. And... He actually is offering an insanity excuse. You know, he was evaluated for competency, was found to be competent to stand trial. Um, it's just really bizarre that the police could not tie him to this. And I think it had more to do with DNA evidence that they didn't have the type of blood work they have now to specifically identify the blood in the box, the blood in the van, to the victims that were in this situation. But were the other three guys incriminating Robin Gett, or were they protecting him? I don't, I don't get it. No, they were, they were, they were pointing at him. They said he's the leader. He's the one doing it. He's the one. And they were, they said, look, we're very afraid of him because they were actually saying that he had powers. Yes, super. You have sixty seconds remaining. Let me call back. Tommy Cocorellis. He's only twenty-three. He intended to block his confession from being admitted. He lost. It was, they said there's Miranda, all right. That was all thrown in. In 1984, he was convicted and given 70 years for his part in all these murders. It went for specifically Lorraine Borowski's murder. Andrew, his brother, was tried in two separate counties because he admitted to killing Rose Davis and he then was given a life sentence. His second trial, um, that one was even more difficult because remember he made false promises, they promised him this, he said that the cops beat him, that they they got the confession because um, he wouldn't talk so they beat it out of him, all that stuff was like, forget about it you're, you're out of your mind so they then pushed another trial on him and they convicted him they convicted him of um, you know and, and you know the, the thing about this case which is crazy you have so many guys telling so many different stories but the one consistency that, that there is in, this, in these trials is that they all admit to killing those particular women which is about six different women that they admit yeah we did it this is what I did and this is how I did it um, he even says, hey, Lorraine Borowski, 
that's the that he tells him that's the girl that Ed Spritzer killed that both I and Spritzer killed in the cemetery and that's where they found her so a lot of compelling evidence collaborating evidence to what they're saying that proves to be true and that earned this guy a death penalty yeah but just the one guy the other three uh, uh, what kind of sentence did get Gecht get because he uh he 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 was okay. resolute. He never admitted to this. He he got seventy years. That's it for the aggravated. Uh, I'm sorry. He got 120 years because they, for the aggravated assault and the mutilation of the young woman, Mrs. Washington, which he dismembered and did, he just tortured her and left her for dead. He was given, I believe, it was like 120 years for that deal. But the other ones. Um, Tommy received 70 years in prison because he was a bit dim-witted. He was a teenager. His brother, however, was given the death penalty. And, um, you know, it's interesting because he was the last guy that they put to death in Chicago. Chicago had a moratorium for the death penalty and the governor had let most of the guys up there. This guy was the last person put to death under that statue before the governor uh, completely obliterated the death penalty at in Chicago. So this guy was the last one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's still just a weird dynamic, just a weird situation with these four guys. So... I guess comparing him to Manson, this was all gets. Obviously, he organized it, but do you think he was the most into it in terms of the rapes and murders? Yeah, I, I think that yeah, Get is the the ringleader of this particular crew. Remember, most of these guys, they're teenagers. These guys aren't you know mature men. Get was about twelve years older than some of these guys you know um, so in my in my opinion you have a very dominating person that look those guys are willing you can't forgive that they're willing they're able they did what they did um, but the guy behind the whole thing is yeah does it make a difference to me it does not every one of those guys who raped mutilated murdered all these women are equally as guilty. The guy who got away with it, for the most part, is Gek. He, he didn't face a death penalty. He was never convicted of a murder. He was convicted of the attack on Miss Washington, and that's it. Yeah, but he's still in prison. In fact, the he other is. three guys and, are. And he'll be there for a while. Ed Spitzer, um, who was convicted by a jury, and Look, the truth is, he was convicted of a number of these murders. He also received the death penalty, by the way. He did receive, um, you know, it's really interesting. Governor Ryan, who at the time was the governor, gave blanket clemency to a lot of people. One of those people, persons, was Ed Spritzer. And that drew a lot of criticism against Governor Ryan because of 
because the brutality of this case. I mean, this wasn't a case where it was, and I'm not saying just a murder rape, it was a horrible case. The the level of torture, the, the, the level of cruelty is, is really basically unheard of when it comes to these type of cases. You have four killers hunting together, whether it was for the cause that gets wanted, or it doesn't really matter to me. You have four of them and you know, they're gonna spend the rest of their life in prison, but one of them actually got out. That's what I, I, I find so interesting about this is that one of them, which is one of the, the and I, I screw up these guys' names, Coco Reyes, brother, this guy got out actually. I don't know if you knew that or not, Matt, but he actually got out. Yeah, I guess and it, uh, the, the families have gone nuts because you know, he's the one that got the 70 years. He, by the way, his name is Thomas, or Tommy. And his brother was executed for the same things that he was convicted of, but because he was cooperating a little bit more, he was a little bit more sympathetic, they gave him 70 years, and he walked out of prison already. Yeah. And he's only, what, 60... He's like your age. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was yeah, he's fifty eight. You know, yeah, he's right there. Um, but yeah, he admitted to murdering Lori uh, Borowski. Um, he admitted to doing all the things that the rest of them did. But they released him, um, and I believe it was just a couple months ago. I mean, a couple years ago, they released him, and he went to a. Um, he had to, 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 to register with the Wheaton Police Department. Um, he's staying at a Christian-based shelter. Um, he has to register as a sex offender with the DuPage, uh, DuPage uh, County State Attorney's Office. But um, he's out. And here's the crazy part. I think the audience will find this extremely interesting. This guy, he went before a psychiatrist in prison and their opinion of him, of him uh, is that he's not likely to propose or propose a threat to women or the community. And I just think that's the biggest crock of shit I've ever heard in my life. This guy mutilated, murdered, raped, tortured in excess of 18 women. And he got a 70 year sentence he's now out because two psychiatrists says that he is not likely to commit the same crimes again. I don't know about you guys, but um, you know, I've talked about sexual predators and that you can't cure that. It's why you can castrate a sexual deviant and he was still in his own mind accomplish that level of gratification if he molests the child or rapes a woman. Even if he's not raping her with his penis because he doesn't have one. It, it's, a, it's, it's a power thing. Was, you know, rape is not about sex, it's about violence. So that they let this guy out is just mind-blowing to me, man. I, I don't get it. Yeah, what could they possibly be basing that on that he's not a threat? I mean, I have no experience as a, as a psychiatrist, a psychologist, but I can tell you that anyone 
who sliced body parts off of people while they were still alive at any age is clearly a threat. That's just common sense. Well, he's a threat. Look at the things he, the, the deviancy of his, of his state of mind. He doesn't, okay, he cuts the breast. It's horrible. And then they masturbate on the flesh. Then they eat it. And then they, and it was the level of torture. One of the women they killed with a hatchet. The other ones, they strangled them. That's, look, I'm looking at this case as an expert. And I'm, and I'm telling you that this guy is a threat. All four of these guys are threats. You don't wake up one morning and decide to start mutilating women and killing them, you know, over and over and over. That's the difference between a guy who does something, he robs somebody, does something for money, does something because of vengeance or anger, and, and, and they get into a fight and, and the person dies for whatever reason, as brutal as it can be. You, you can understand the reasoning behind it. It may not be right, it's completely horrendous, yes. However, this guy, it was a constant thing. He did one, Oh, let's do another one. I want to reach that level of gratification. So he's not doing it for vengeance. He's not doing it because he's angry. He's not doing it for robbery or for any kind of other gain. He's doing it because he likes it. And that is the difference between a predator who's a serial predator and a person who possibly killed somebody because of a logical reason. It may be wrong that he did it, but you can logically understand what was going through his mind. But these guys... The only logic is they like doing it. And that makes an extremely dangerous individual. Yeah, I mean, what kind of idiots paroled this guy? This is in Chicago, where black people are in prison well, for slinging a couple crack rocks, and, and you're letting this guy out? I mean, what, what? let's just say he's not a threat to reoffend, which is just obviously idiotic. But shouldn't the punishment... For what he did, which shouldn't he have the worst, most severe punishment that there is? I mean, I can't think of a more severe crime. So, what are we doing? No, you're absolutely right. And, and this also take into account that, yeah, I'm just stacking things here, but let's, this is all truth. They weren't just murderers, rapists, torturers, they were also cannibalists. They were eating the flesh. They were necrophiliacs as well. They were raping the women once they were dead. These guys, that, that level of twistedness or that level of depraved, just a person that has zero type of empathy or anything for anybody is gone when you're eating the flesh, you're, you're having sex with a corpse. These are twisted individuals. That, and they, and the, to answer your question, they let him out was because they gave him a seven-year sentence. It wasn't 70 years to life. If you have a life pump, you have to go before a parole board. So, and they can deny you. But because he had a flat 70 years, once those 70 years are up, or I don't know what the time that you do in, uh, in California, it used to be half time, then it became 85% of the time. So once he met the threshold that he had passed the time that he had to be in prison, and he was a lot was supposed to be out a few years prior to that, but they kept him in. Finally, he the entire time ran out. He left with no fucking ankle bracelet, with no type of monitoring or anything, because he served out the longest 
possible prison term for the 70 year sentence. He walks out. There was no parole board to go in front of. The reason the psychiatrist looked at him was because his own defense team did his part as part of the thing of saying, hey, we wanted this guy out and he's okay. He, he, no one needs to kill this guy because he's okay. So the, the two guys said, oh, he's, he's in great shape. He's, he doesn't pose a threat. You can let him out. And that Christian home brought him in. But the truth is, this guy's a fucking piece of garbage, man. I mean, he's, he's killing and raping children, 18-year-olds, and um, I just don't get it. I don't fucking get it. And we're going to look back in 50 years, 100 years, go, what were we doing? You know, the people that were in prison, many of them didn't need to be in there. The people that really need, I, I mean, people, people are in prison for drugs, even if it's selling drugs, I mean, whatever. You know, and then we're letting people out who need to be in. People who, I mean, cannibals, for Christ's sake. It's like, it blows my mind. You know, I was having a discussion just the other day with a guy here in prison. And I was interviewing him because I wanted to see what he thought about the sentence that he got. This guy received 31 years to life. So you're thinking, and I'm thinking, 31 years to life. I'm sorry, 40 years to life. So obviously, he killed somebody, right? And, he, and I said, well, how many people did you kill? He said, I didn't kill anybody. I, he says, I'm not here for homicide. And I said, wait a minute, you got 40 years to life? How much time did you to do? He goes, well, I had to do no less than 25 years of that because I'm a youth offender. So I said, so what did you do? He said, well, um, when I was 18, I... Uh, you know, I got in a fight with the guy and I had assault. I said, okay. He said, when I was 22, um, you know, I stole uh, a laundry, uh, I'm sorry, a lawnmower from a guy's garage. I said, okay. So what, he goes, well, when I was 25, um, I went into a store and I stole uh, two chickens. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I said, chickens? Like the kind you eat? He goes, yeah, it was a restaurant that had rotisserie chickens. I was hungry. And I'm sitting there looking at this guy, and I'm thinking he's bullshitting, so the next day he brings the paper right to me, I see it. He was in prison for stealing $21 in chicken. 40 years to life. He's got to do a minimum of 25 years before he goes before a parole board. This guy is not a killer. He's not a rapist. He's not a a threat, he stole some chickens. So the state of California sends him to prison for 25 years minimum. So fiscally irresponsibility, this is the perfect place to look at it. $22 versus approximately $2.7 million because it costs $107,000 now to keep a guy in prison, house him, feed him, medical, dental, et cetera, et cetera. So the state of California just wasted $107,000 for 25 years on $22 a chicken. And yet guys like this guy, Tommy um, Cocorillas or Cocorillas, whatever his freaking name is, raped, mutilated, tortured, in excess of 18 women, ate their body parts, and he's getting out. Yeah, so I don't the, need justice in that. the chicken, say the chicken that he stole was one strike, there's only one trial, so the spritzer guy, the lives of 18 women, also one strike. Yep. Right. 
It's just incredible. It's just, look, this is, and I think this is one of the reasons that people in the 80s began to become hard on crime because of these situations. You see guys like this guy gets 70 years, still a time, but he gets 40 and he gets out. People were mad about that, so of course our politicians always say, well, you know, harder on crime, put him in prison, but they don't tell you is you're the one flipping the bill. You know, guys like this guy, and I have said this for rapists, child molesters, people that do these type of sexually deviant crimes, there needs to be a death penalty and they need to be executed. I know that sounds like me, you know, the kettle calling the whatever the hell black, but the truth is I have more experience with these situations. I've actually listened to these guys talk once on death row and they say things. They talk about what how funny it is and that the state of California gave them lawyers, gave them all this stuff and they're now rock stars and around death row and all this stuff. It's because these tra- these appeals last so long for these serial killers. If you're an admitted serial killer and you fit like these guys were and that they say, look, I did this, 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 and that, it should automatically trigger an execution date and you're executed, simple as that. I know that sounds kind of harsh. And Matt, you and I have had heated back and forth about conservatism and, and, and being liberal. I, but you and I both agree when it comes to these kind of guys, they should be taken out of the back of the court on a shot. That's simple. Yeah, philosophically, I have no problem with that. In fact, I would encourage it. Bill, anything you want to promote before we sign off? Well, only I hope that uh, the audience takes a look at my website, artistlimitedgear.com. There's a lot of interesting things there about my new book coming out. Please sign up for my newsletter. Um, look at my uh, my YouTube channel, uh, Through a Lens of Monsters, under William A. Noguera. So please check us out there. Please sign up for Instagram at Death Row Diaries. And as Matt said, Patreon, there's information there you can sign on to. You get bonus episodes. So we'd love to have you there and of course if you sign up now and you ask for us to do a case I'll be happy to take a look at that case and give you my opinion on it yeah and on that Patreon page by the way you've touched on some projects that you're working on and I know what it is we can't say anything about it but on that Patreon page I would just hint that there's a few episodes that touch on something that um that you'll all know about soon. I guess that's as mu- much as I can say about it. Anyway, until that's next time. That's as much as we can say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time. All right. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. Um, shit. <laughs>